You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Really playing hard to get means valuing yourself. Because remember, scarcity equals value. So if you value yourself, you know what you stand for. You know who you are. You're confident in you. That shows your value. And that still shows that maybe you're a little bit harder to get. You know, maybe you're not available to everybody. Investing in the market is about more than just money. It's about investing in your future and your choices. It's investing in you. If you're looking to optimize your investment strategy, visit planefe.com slash hermoney and schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. So have you ever seen an ad? on Facebook or more likely Instagram for something that you really don't need, but you end up buying it anyway. If you're nodding right now, don't feel ashamed. I am right there with you. Those ads, they are designed to be hard to resist and we fall for them more than we should, often because of three magic words, limited time, only. We are mysteriously drawn to open up our wallets whenever we feel like something we want is in limited supply. And businesses, well, they're not afraid to take full advantage of our buying impulses by telling us there is only one left or even including a countdown timer for when a sale is supposed to end on their website. Remember the early days of the pandemic when you couldn't find paper towels or toilet paper for weeks because everyone was stocking up? That's because people were terrified of running out. And just recently, to give you another example, we saw more than 10 million Taylor Swift fans fighting over just two and a half million concert seats, causing secondhand ticket prices to skyrocket to as much as $30,000, which by the way, love Taylor Swift, that is insane. These impulse purchases don't just hurt your wallet for next week or the next month. Over time, they can prevent you from reaching the really big financial goals that matter, like buying a car, planning a wedding, starting a college fund for your kids, or even retiring when you choose to. That's why it's so important to understand where our shopping habits come from and how we can gain a little bit of control over them. Today, we've got marketing and psychology expert Mindy Weinstein here with us. She is the founder and CEO of the digital marketing firm Market Mindshift, which has trained thousands of professionals on the fundamentals of marketing. She's also a marketing instructor at Grand Canyon University and the University of Denver and the author of The Power of Scarcity, Leveraging Urgency and Demand to Influence Customer Decisions. Mindy, welcome. So glad to have you here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Your research focuses on scarcity marketing, the way that businesses use that idea that product is limited in supply in order to encourage you to buy it. I mean, in other words, FOMO, right? Your your research is in the field of FOMO, but I'd love to get into the science behind this. What's actually happening in our brains when we think that something is so limited, we may not be able to get ours. So we've actually seen in brain scans, which area of our brains are impacted by scarcity. And when I say brain scans, these were studies where participants came in, they were hooked up to MRI machines, so full you know, view of their brains, and then exposed to scarcity. And when I say exposed to scarcity, I don't mean that they were told that they weren't going to have water or food, the essential items. No, when I say exposed to scarcity, I'm talking about things like an auction simulation, buying products that are scarce, or sales. You know, here's a sale for, you know, today only or for the next, you know, seven days. And what happened in those studies is that the researchers were able to see that the area of the brain associated with valuing things, so the valuation process, would immediately light up, just immediately. 
which really got researchers to conclude that scarcity in our brain equals value. It's really an equation, scarcity equals value. But the other thing, and this is what gets a lot of us, is that researchers have been able to see in the brain that, again, being faced with scarcity, even if it's a promotion, the part of our brain that is associated with decision-making lights up right away, which means there's a lot of activity there. And the conclusion is what's happening is the normal steps that we would take in the decision-making process are completely skipped. So we go straight to decision. Oh, it's scarce. It's hard to get. It's limited. It's today only. And boom, that decision's made. It's that powerful. I am thinking about two things simultaneously as you're talking about this, right? There are sales that you fall for, but they're kind of no big deal, right? You you walk into a store, you see a pretty sweater, it's 50% off, this is the last day of the sale, you grab it, even if it's not returnable, because your brain is telling you, oh my gosh, I can't miss out on this. But then, then there is the housing market during the pandemic, right? When houses were in very short supply, people who wanted to buy them were bidding up their offers without even really running the numbers on what this was going to do to their lives. They were foregoing appraisals. They were not going through the typical home buying steps that protect people. And now surveys are showing us an awful lot of regret. So this can hit you in a small way, but it can also hit your financial life in a major way. That example of the housing market is actually a really good one. One, it does show how powerful scarcity is and the fact that we will hyper-focus on something if it's difficult to get. Our brain now considers this urgent. Now, also, just as I was talking about those brain studies that showed that we skipped the normal steps in the decision-making process, the same thing was happening in that scenario. Just like you described, people weren't going through the normal steps. It was, I want this house. I want it now. I'm going to overpay. I don't want the appraisal because it was urgent. But it's also interesting because you mentioned regret. And there have been studies that have looked at regret, but actually from the angle of anticipated regret for not taking an action. Sometimes with our decisions, we will decide to purchase something or to do something because we feel like if we don't do it, we might regret it. And that goes along with scarcity. So if you think that something might not be available to you later, you're already thinking, oh, I might regret if I don't take action. And so you do take action. But what the research has shown is that anticipated regret that we think we're going to feel is actually short-lived. So if you decide, you know what, I'm not going to make this purchase, I'm not going to take this action, especially if it was impulsive, it's going to not be something that you continue to regret. It's actually going to be something in a good over time. This is why the 24-hour purchasing pause works, by the way. And we talk about the 24-hour purchasing pause a lot on this show. This idea that whether you put something in your cart online or you just ask the store to hold it for you for 24 hours, if you can get yourself to leave, you may decide that you no longer need it because you get home and you see you have three other things that are similar in your closet or you didn't like it that much anyway or it didn't really fit and you were just buying it because it was on sale and you don't spend the money. I love that. That's actually the advice that I give to you because I do get the question a lot about scarcity because it seems so bleak. When I talk about the brain and the brain does this and you hyperfocus and there's FOMO, it feels like it's out of your control, but it's really not. And that is the advice I give as well is wait 24 hours. If you still feel the next day that this is something you want or like you have a chance to look at what you already own, then you can make more of a rational decision. And it's really interesting because I have two boys and so I have two teenagers, and this is something that I teach them. And even my 13-year-old will get caught up in the latest thing he needs to buy at his game, and he'll tell me, well, it's on sale for today only. And I usually tell him, you know what? You can probably find it on sale somewhere else tomorrow, but why don't you think about it? And so many times the next day, he's like, I don't really want it. I thought about it. So I think that's such an important rule. In your book, you write about four different types of scarcity. I think we've covered one or two, but can you lay out what they are so that we can recognize them and how they work? 
Of course, so you have demand-related scarcity. And that's where something is popular. And it might be scarce, but it's due to the popularity or unplanned demand. So the toilet paper shortage, that was definitely demand-related scarcity when we experienced that. Then there's supply-related scarcity, and that is a limitation on the supply. So it could be because of a shortage or it could be intentional. So whenever you see those Nike drops, that's supply-related scarcity. Then there's limited edition, and limited edition is any type of twist on the original. So it could be the packaging or the product itself, or even if it's a service, some type of limited edition bundle. And that is technically part of supply-related scarcity, but I call it out separate because it just impacts us differently. And then the last one is time-related scarcity. And time-related scarcity is a restriction of some type. So when you talked earlier about countdown timers, that's time-related scarcity or a coupon or a promotion or a limited time product. So if you're a big pumpkin spice latte lover from Starbucks, that's still time-related scarcity. Are there different ways that we should handle these different types? Well, it's more or less who they really impact. So through research, we know that supply-related scarcity, which again, could be those things that are purposely limited. So we see that a lot in luxury items or conspicuous items, meaning things that people see you know, that we're wearing or we're carrying, those type of things, or driving. That that type of scarcity really speaks to someone who likes self-expression or who wants to be unique. And so if you know that that's what you're prone to, then you need to understand that you are probably going to be more susceptible to supply-related scarcity and to be aware of that. Now, demand-related scarcity, a lot of times that is we want to belong to a group or a community. So if we see something that, oh, everyone's going to this restaurant, I want to go to that restaurant too, and there's a wait list, well, you're really going to want to get in. Time-related, I'll tell you, impacts a lot of us. And so that one's a big one just to remember, do pause on your purchases. You don't have to buy something right then and there. So just understanding really how you are and what you are prone to will help you overcome those type of scarcity messages. When we look at the consumers, not just in this country, but around the world, the lion's share of them are women. 85% of purchases are made by women. Are these tactics specifically aimed at us and the way our brains work? And is it different than men? Actually, it hasn't been shown in research that it makes a difference between men and women. The only thing that we see that makes a difference is our hunters and our gatherers. You know, historically, women tend to be more of the gatherers. And so having more of a social aspect and appeal within a store or events that you're doing is going to bring women in more. Men, just let me see it. <laughs> I want this as easy as possible. But when it comes to scarcity, it impacts all of us. And part of that's because it's so primal. It's hardwired into our brain. So you see men susceptible to it and women too. How about generationally? I did a study on money and happiness years ago. And one of the nice things that my research unveiled about getting older was that older people are a little less susceptible, that they've learned in some way that having more stuff doesn't mean you win. That is the same thing when it comes to scarcity, too. And so there has been studies that have looked at that. So as we age, so as we get older and we've been consumers for a while, we have more of a loyalty to certain products, too. So if we see that something is a flash sale today only, well, we don't care. That's not a brand that we're interested in. And then it can even backfire. So if a marketer is trying to reach an older audience, so thinking more retirement years, and you're showing that something's in high demand or this event is going to be sold out, and it can actually turn them off instead. So younger people do tend to be more drawn into that. So you see that with Gen Z, and then also millennials too. They get caught up in that, which millennials is such a big cohort. So talking more about the, the younger half of the millennials. But absolutely, as you get older, you start to recognize those different tactics, but you're already loyal. You're not going to feel that sense of urgency to buy something. I want to dig more into FOMO and also into how we can protect our kids from all of these urges. But before I do that, I want to know a little bit about you. What happened in your life that made you want to study this? 
So for me, what got me interested in the subject was when I was working on my PhD. I studied general psychology, and I knew that I wanted to dive in very deep on consumer behavior and what motivates people to make purchases. And so as I started doing that, I was looking at all the different influence factors and quickly realized that of all of them, scarcity appears to be the strongest. And it's because, as I mentioned, it's primal in us. Our ancestors were trying to survive in environments where resources were scarce. As I was looking at that and even examining my own behavior and then my experience as a marketer, scarcity is driving so many decisions. And I don't think everyone realizes it. Plus, a lot of the research is housed in the academic world without being out there for everyone else to really know and understand. And then when the pandemic hit, watching all the frenzy, I thought, I'm actually watching all of my years of research just play out. And that's what got me to think, you know, I just want to get this information out there and start talking about it more. So as consumers, we understand why we're doing what we're doing. The unfortunate part is even when we understand why we're doing what we're doing, we sometimes do it anyway. True. Right? And I think about myself during the pandemic, right? I've seen these MRI studies where people's brains light up like a Christmas tree. I've read them. And yet, I spent $36 on toilet paper on eBay, right? Which was ridiculous. Six rolls of toilet paper, right? It was ridiculous. But there was none in my store. I thought, all right. I guess I just have to bite the bullet and do this. I knew better, and it didn't stop me. We're going to hold that thought and my embarrassing toilet paper moment for just a second, because when it comes to investing, confidence is key. I'm talking about confidence in your ability, your knowledge, and your strategy. If you are ready to do more with your own investments, visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. You can review your current situation with an expert and get tailored investment strategies to help you build, grow, protect, and preserve your wealth. The way to get started is to go to planefe.com slash hermoney. Do more for your future right now and speak with an advisor today. I am talking to Dr. Mindy Weinstein, marketing instructor and author of The Power of Scarcity. Let's unpack FOMO a little bit, Mindy. What is it? Like, what exactly is it if you look at it scientifically? Yes. Okay. So I want to get into that, but I just wanted to mention something just to tell you that even though I've studied scarcity for years, I still fall for it too. So you are, you are not alone. As you were saying that I was eyeing this giant 40-ounce cup that I have sitting on my desk, the Stanley Quencher. I didn't even know about it until I saw it on my friend's desk. And I said, oh, well, that's a great cup. And she goes, you didn't know about it? Oh, you know, it's sold out everywhere. And then all of a sudden, now I'm interested in it because of FOMO, what you just said. So I found myself signing up to be on the list to be notified when they came back in stock. And it's kind of embarrassing to say this, but I'm just going to go ahead and just be real right now. I actually got the notification while I was teaching. <laughs> so I had that moment of, do I buy it right now? Hey, everyone. I guess, what did you do? Oh, see, now I was, I'm just going to, again, be real. I just had the students work on an exercise real quick. I bought my cup. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So, and how is it having that cup? Do you love the cup? You know what? I actually do love the cup, but it makes me laugh when I look at it because it, it's a reminder that you might have the head knowledge, you know, with scarcity, but sometimes it can still get you. I know. I will tell you, I don't regret the purchase, but FOMO is what drove me to do what I did. And I do want to unpack that with you. Because when my friend said, I have this cup and I saw it, then all of a sudden, and I'm sure this has happened to all of us, you start noticing everyone else with this cup, which you hadn't noticed it before, but now you do. When I went online, I couldn't find it anywhere. And eBay did have it. I think it was about $30, $40 cup selling on eBay for $180. So, I mean, it was out there, right? But I felt like I missed out. All these people have it and I don't have it. I want to be hydrated with a 40-ounce cup. And so here's what happens to the brain. So with FOMO, just like I was talking about from a primal standpoint, we focus on something scarce because there's a sense of urgency in our brains not understanding that this isn't something essential to our survival. 
We're also hardwired to avoid loss. We don't want to experience loss. And that feeling that we might have or we anticipate we'll have about losing something is actually stronger than the feeling that we'll have if we gain something. So here's an example. If you have ever been in a parking lot and found money on the ground and no one's around, let's just say it's a $20 bill. That feels pretty good. But, you know, there's no one to give it to. So you just gain $20. It's exciting. You put it in your pocket or your purse. So you have that gain. But you probably also been in a situation where you've misplaced money. Can't find that $20 bill that you thought you put in your pocket. Where did it go? Well, that feeling you start to get about that loss is actually stronger. And that's something we've seen in research. And so that goes to loss aversion and fear of missing out. We will do what we feel like we need to do to not experience that loss. And so scarcity ignites that feeling. So we feel like if we don't buy this now or go to this brand new restaurant or attend this Taylor Swift event, we are going to miss out. But going back to what I said just a little bit earlier, you need to tell yourself and remind yourself that that feeling is gonna be short-lived because that goes back to the regrets when we think we're gonna feel. You might feel like you missed out for a little bit, but it's not gonna be something you know, you're gonna continue to feel. It will go away. One of the great things in your book is that you write that scarcity isn't just something that businesses can use to make a bigger profit. Like we can use scarcity to improve our careers, our personal lives, our dating lives. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. And so most people, you know, we all know plain hard to get. We've heard that before. But did you know that's actually scarcity is what it is? And you can, let's say you're a consultant and you work with clients, let's say. Well, you have a natural limitation on the hours in the day. We all do. I don't think anyone has more than 24 hours. We all have 24 hours. So you as a consultant, can be selective on who you work with. You can communicate that when you're talking to a potential client. You know, I work with, you know, five clients on five projects at a time. And that makes you more desirable because it still ignites that scarcity principle. You have shown that you have some type of limitation and people will want to work with you more. And I know a lot of consultants that have mentioned that in meetings with prospects. And then it flips the conversation to the prospect trying to explain to that consultant of, I will be a great client. You'll love working with us, you know, we're loyal. And so it's very interesting. And the same thing happens on the dating side. And so when I say plain hard to get, it doesn't mean, yeah, I'm not gonna return your call or I'm gonna ghost this person. Really plain hard to get means valuing yourself. Because remember, scarcity equals value. So if you value yourself, you know what you stand for. You know who you are. You're confident in you. That shows your value. And that still shows that maybe you're a little bit harder to get. You know, maybe you're not available to everybody. And so that is a big thing. And it's still scarcity. And I feel like in general, whether business or personal, we should always value who we are. And that is just a, a great rule to live by. What does that mean really specifically in terms of putting yourself out on dating apps or the number of times that you swipe? I don't want you to lay out necessarily specific rules unless you have some, in which case I think our listeners would appreciate them. But when I'm saying value yourself, you don't have to necessarily connect with everyone who's trying to connect with you and communicate with them and go on that date just because you can be selective and you should be selective. And you don't always have to make yourself available. If someone is saying the last minute, hey, I want to get together tonight and you're not necessarily sure you want to do that. You haven't met this person before. There's nothing wrong with saying, no, I am not available tonight. You know, let's plan this at a future date. I think sometimes what happens is that there's that fear of like, well, if I don't make this plan right now, I might not be able to have this plan with this person in the future. But that's not always the case. And so even those kind of things, when I'm saying playing the hard to get, that's really what I'm referring to. As we wrap this up, I want to zoom out. Let's take a bigger picture view of the economy and how our buying habits in this country are changing. Yes, we have massive supply chain issues. 
caused by the pandemic, as well as the war in Ukraine. We're still dealing with them today. But I'm also thinking about things like climate change and how it's become more exciting to buy things secondhand and how eventually climate change may lead to a number of resource shortages. Do you think that we're looking at a world where scarcity is going to be even more of a force in the future than it is today? I can see that. I do feel that scarcity in terms of the messaging, I'll put it that way, versus actual scarcity is more prevalent now. And it's something that we see all the time because we're so connected. You know, we see things on social media, we open up our browser and there might be an article or some type of promotion showing scarcity or limitation. But going forward, as you mentioned, I do think there's going to be even more of that. So because it's in front of us, plus actual scarcity. And again, since we're hardwired that way, it's something that we are going to be very vulnerable to. And so if you can just start training yourself now and getting these good habits of not making those purchases right away, really thinking through what you're doing, it's going to help you even down the road recognize why you're making certain decisions and making smarter money decisions too. And is that the best thing to do with our children? I mean, they're all, many of them, walking around with these very powerful computers in their pockets that allow them to experience FOMO, which feels lousy, to a degree that I never did as a child. I mean, I definitely experienced it, but not like the kids of today. Is that the best way for parents to protect them, to teach these lessons of waiting? Or is there something else that we can do? Well, I think two things which we touched on and this, and I'm just going to tell you from a mom's perspective, because this is something that I deal with with my boys. So as I said, they're teenagers. I'm a 17-year-old and a 13-year-old, and they very much are, you know, seeing social media, they're seeing ads. So whether it's they're missing out on something their friends are doing because they see that on social or I bring up the Nike drop because I feel like that's my household. I'm always hearing about the latest <laughs> drop. I mean, again, that's scarcity. And it's those conversations. It's having those conversations with your kids. Of, I know you feel this way. You feel like you're missing out, but you're not going to continue to feel that way. And also explaining just because you see this product online and it's showing it's popular doesn't mean everybody has it. It doesn't mean that if you don't have it, you're any less of a person. And then just letting them understand that it is so important to try to really avoid those impulsive purchases, which is what comes from scarcity. I mean, those are the things that I'm trying to instill with my boys. And I feel like you know, doing those kind of things helps. And I make it sound like I've got this all down. I mean, it's a constant conversation. <laughs> and I'm really trying to get them in that mindset of FOMO is going to go away. Don't fall for FOMO. Don't make decisions because of that. It is a constant conversation between me, myself, and I as well. So always a struggle. Mindy, where can our listeners find more about you and your work? Yes. So if you just go to powerofscarcity.com, you'll see my book. I have a blog. I have my contact information. So all kinds of things. Perfect. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Really, really great information. Thank you. It was great. And we're back on Her Money with the reminder that Her Money is supported by BCU, one of the nation's fastest growing credit unions, and with good reason. BCU helps members make smart financial decisions by offering the products, services, and caring support they need for whatever stage of life they're in. Find out if you're eligible to join BCU by visiting bcu.org. Catherine Tuggle is joining me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Good to see you as always. Hey, Jean. I really need to hear more about the eBay toilet paper. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I know you, just so full disclosure about how this podcast comes together. I said I bought this toilet paper on eBay. Catherine jumped into the recording and said, you mean Amazon, right? You do mean Amazon. But no, in fact... I mean, eBay, we were down to our last, I don't know, four rolls, maybe. There was no toilet paper to be had in the grocery store because it had just run out. We were only going to the store about 
every two weeks. And believe me, at that point, I mean, sounds kind of ridiculous now, but Elliot was going in the equivalent of what amounted to a hazmat suit and would come back into the garage and we'd wipe down all the packages before bringing them into the house. We were scared at the beginning of the pandemic and I was really scared of running out of toilet paper. And this was even before I had a dog who likes to eat the toilet paper. So I didn't need it as a toy. I just needed it for, you know, toilet paper. And I went on eBay and somebody was selling a pack of six rolls for $36 and I bought it. And I got it in the mail and we didn't use it the entire pandemic because the stores stocked up and we were able to get what we needed. And I just sort of held on to it as a pandemic reminder that I didn't need to be that aggressive about my shopping. But yeah. And look, I am very susceptible to a sale. I am very susceptible to scarcity. I know this about myself. It's the reason that years ago I went on this diet, this spending diet, where for six months I didn't allow myself to buy anything on sale. I did it at the beginning of the year to basically see what it would do to my shopping overall, because I tend to jump when things are on sale. You do too. I, I've watched you with the J. Crew sales. You like a good sale. I love a good sale. I love a good sale. And, you know, I grew up thrifting. And then I think once I had more money, then I was like, okay, well, now I can go to sales, you know. But but I do think whenever I look at my credit card statement and I see I've spent too much, I'm like, okay, you got to get back to the thrift store if you want new stuff. If you want this much new stuff, you got to get back to the thrift store. Yeah. I watch my niece, Sydney, who has the business that I've spoken about on this show. She silk screens. Yeah, the t-shirt. Yeah, the t-shirt business. And she sells out of her own website and also on Instagram and Depop. And she thrifts like crazy. She has such great fashion sense. And much of what she gets is thrifted. And she gets compliments, you know, walking down the street. There's really good stuff thrifting and at consignment and secondhand. I recently bought a couple pairs of jeans on Poshmark because they stopped making the jeans that I like. You can still get them on Poshmark. I got a pair of jeans for, I don't know, $29 that would have cost 200 something in a store when they were first new and nobody's wearing them anymore except for me, I guess but I'm happy to wear them. So I don't know. But then look at me. I'm like bragging that I got this pair of jeans on Poshmark. And believe me, I pushed that button really fast when I found them because there was only one and I didn't want somebody else to have it. I think the research that Mindy does is really interesting. I do think we need better guardrails to protect us from ourselves. Right. It is an interesting point, though, when you do look at everything through the lens of scarcity, because when you are shopping at a thrift store, you know there's only one. So you go in knowing that you're in a scarcity situation. And yet you also go in with a more watchful eye, knowing that things are likely to have flaws and that you have to be careful, or I would think more careful, about what you're taking home with you. Yeah, definitely. Although my mom did over Christmas just teach me how to mend sweaters from the inside. So if you have any holy sweaters, bring them here next time you come and I will patch them for you. I will think about that. I do have one terrible thrifting story about how my sister-in-law, Allie, the mother of Sydney and Dylan on one thrifting venture actually brought home bed bugs. Oh, no, that is the worst. Yes. You know, when they were really rampant in New York City, I had a rule. Everything went into the freezer for like three days. Does that kill them? Yeah, it kills them after like, you know, 24 hours. But my husband, who was my boyfriend at that point, came home and was like, why are there pants in the freezer? <laughs> well, they say that if you don't want to wash your jeans, you should just put them in the freezer for a couple of days and that kills everything. All right. Well. A knowledge brought to you by Her Money. Random trivia. Let's answer some questions. Our first question today comes from Judith. She writes, hi, Jean. Today, I caught the tail end of a presentation you gave about the pros and cons of long-term care policies. My husband and I both have a long-term care policy from Nationwide. They seem pricey, and I keep wondering if we should continue to annually pay $16,000 and $17,000 respectively. How can we figure out if this is something we should continue to invest in? 
Thank you. Oh, Judith, I would love to give you an exact answer to this question. I can't give it to you because I don't have enough information, but let me give you the lay of the land right now on long-term care policies. And that is that prices have gone up recently across the board to such a degree that people who haven't gotten notice that their premiums are going up for many, many years have started getting these notices. And I know this because I wrote one column about long-term care for my AARP column and got a ton of letters from people who said, this happened to me too, this happened to me too. And so I looked into it. And what's going on is that when long-term care insurers initially entered the market, they underestimated longevity to a dramatic degree. And they didn't plan on a decade and change of interest rates that were low, low, low. And so what happened as a result was that they made these promises that at the current rate of premium, they're having difficulty fulfilling on because they have not been able to grow the investments in their policies as much as they might expect. Insurance companies are very limited in how they are allowed to invest the money that your payouts are based on, and they have to stick to very safe investments, and those very safe investments have not been paying off at all, and then people have been living much longer than anticipated. So as a result, they are raising premiums. The contracts that they initially sent out allow for this. They do have to get approval from the state insurance regulators in order to do so, but the insurance regulators have been looking at what's going on with the insurers, and they have granted approval in many cases recently. I don't know where your premiums started, and I don't know how much they've gone up. I don't know how much this represents out of your financial life, or if you have the ability to pay for your own care. I do know that the insurance companies, many of them are making deals. They are looking at the policies of individuals and when they raise premiums are making offers in the letters that they send out where they're saying things like, well, we can reduce your premium if you reduce the number of years of coverage that you are agreeing to take, or we can reduce your premium if you get rid of the cost of living adjustment or which is basically the inflation adjustment. So I would say a couple of things to you specifically. It's a good idea to go back and reevaluate your need for this care. If you believe that you will need it and it's more important for you than it is for your husband because women tend to outlive men, women tend to need care longer. I would put the emphasis on maintaining your care rather than his if you can only do one. And then I'm going to give you a very specific person to contact. There is an organization called California Health Advocates. You can find it at cahealthadvocates.org. And there is a woman there named Bonnie Burns. I interviewed her for my column. She is incredibly knowledgeable and she's actually helped many, many individuals go through the process of figuring out what to do with their specific long-term care policies. Now, I don't know what her plate looks like at the time, but I do know that she does this on a regular basis and is a fierce consumer advocate. So again, that website is cahealthadvocates.org. Her name is Bonnie Burns. And if you want to send me more specific information about your situation, then I can go ahead and make some more specific recommendations. But to The rest of you who are listening who have seen a small increase in your premiums, I would say if you've got a good policy and a policy that is very generous with its benefits and the increase has not been that vast 
and is something you can tolerate. I would give you the same advice that I gave my own mother who got a 10% premium increase and that was to pay it. Wow. Thank you for the thorough advice, Jean. So why was that your advice to your mom? You thought it was still important enough? Because in the scheme of things, my mother has a really great policy. My parents bought long-term care insurance at the time when it was being written with benefits that would pay out for life, basically. Today's policies are being written with buckets of benefits that pay out for about three years at most. And to be frank, three years is about what people need. But my mother has this very rich policy that would not be written today. And the 10% premium increase is something that she could afford. But right now, my mom's 82 years old. She's in good health, but she's 82 years old. And right now, if she were not able to pay the 10% premium increase, but I was, this is the kind of thing that as the child, I would pick up for my parent. That's a great point. I mean, when you look at Judah's numbers of $16,000, $17,000 a year. They sound very high. It sounds crazy, but then you look at what it costs to spend one month in assisted living, and you think to yourself, well, it's actually not that bad of a deal. Right. And look, Catherine and I, we go through your letters more accurately. Catherine goes through your letters, and the amount of detail that you guys give us is sometimes pretty intense. We may not read the full letter in the podcast, but I want to tell you that having the detail helps us. And in this situation, having more detail would have helped. Yeah, that's a great point, Jean. And you can always reach both of us at mailbag at hermoney.com. Yes. And by the way, can I just point out this long-term care conversation is something that is really, really fascinating to me. We cover this a lot in the Her Money newsletter and in This Week in Your Wallet. If you are a regular listener of this podcast and you're not signed up for the Her Money newsletter, I just am asking you, why are you not signed up for the Her Money newsletter? It's free. It comes to you right in your inbox. And it has the kind of answers to these questions that you all ask all the time. So go to hermoney.com if you haven't been there for a while and just subscribe to the newsletters. Yes, absolutely. Hermoney.com backslash subscribe. Our next question today comes to us from Jill. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. I'm thinking about the option of having a couple of part-time positions instead of one full-time position for a variety of reasons, and I want to make sure I'm considering all the things I need to think about if I go this route. I know I'll be responsible for paying for my own health insurance and that depending on the position, I may or may not get any sick or vacation time, so I'll need to be able to cover my own time off. Is there anything else I need to consider when I think about how to make something like this work financially? How much money would I need to make to maintain the general range for the salary I have from one full-time job? Thank you. Jill, I feel very qualified to answer this question because I feel like for many years, this is how I've been running my life. I've been running it as a series of part-time jobs that add up to, quite frankly, more than one full-time job. But there are holes that are left. Healthcare is one of the big holes, but the other big hole is retirement. When you are a full-time employee of a company, your retirement benefits are often worth an additional couple percentage points on your salary, if not more. When the money that you put into a 401k or a 403b or a 457 is matched by your employer, then that's real money that accrues to your bottom line. That's something as an employer that we look at as the cost of an employee. And so I would encourage you to try to think about all of those things that you are going to need to supplement. Go through the list of employee benefits that you have now, healthcare, vacation. If you've got an HSA, is there a match or an incentive to participate in that health savings account? What is 
the employer match on your 401k? Is it 3% of your salary as it is in many companies? Is it more than that? And just start making a list and adding it up in dollar terms. Does your employer offer subsidized lunches? Does your employer provide an expense account? And how does that factor into your life? Are you in, and I'm just riffing, but are you in the habit of traveling for business and do you get to keep those miles and then do you take your vacation on those miles, right? There's a lot that goes into the soup and more than most people might think. So the best way I think to figure this out is to go through your pay stubs first, figure out what you are going to need to replace, take taxes into account, because even if you're working for yourself, you still have to pay FICA, you still have to pay taxes, make sure that you've grossed everything up to account for that, and then go through your calendar for the past year and see where you have benefited because you worked for a specific company. There may be costs that fall off. There may be no more commuting if you are not going into an office. You may have to spend less money on clothing for conferences, but maybe you're going to end up spending more money because you've got to get more robust internet. It's a spreadsheet that you have to basically go through and figure out yourself. And then the other thing that I would encourage you to consider is the replacement of the network that you currently have at work. If you're working two part-time jobs and they are both remote, what does that mean in terms of your life overall? What does it mean in terms of the amount of socializing that you do? Are you the kind of person who's going to feel like they need to pay for some sort of an office to go to so that you can be around people? I say this because as somebody who works remotely, I've been thinking about maybe I want to have an office where I can be somewhere other than my house. Maybe I want to be around people a little bit more. Those things all have a cost. So that's just a laundry list of things to think about. Healthcare and retirement are, of course, the two biggest. Catherine, what's on your list? Because you've been working remotely as well. Yeah. I mean, I think a good office setup and definitely something built into your budget to get you out of the house. For me, it's yoga. For me, it's seeing friends. But that also means having the budget to go out to dinner with friends because I feel like I am far less inclined now to have a house party. I used to have people over for dinner all the time. But now, after working here Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, I don't want people coming over for dinner. I want to get out. So, you know, it is a laundry list of things. And some of those things you're not even going to know till you get there. Right. And Jill, you know, we're making some assumptions here. We're assuming that these two part-time jobs are going to be remote. They may not be. They may give you some of this structure that Catherine and I are clearly craving. But I think if you can sit down and actually run the numbers, particularly on the benefits side of things, you'll figure it out. The other thing that I would say is try to give yourself a good cushion just in case one of these part-time jobs doesn't work out. You want to give yourself the facileness and the flexibility to make a move if you feel like that's the kind of thing that you want to do. Fortunately, the latest round of job numbers says that the ball is completely in your court. Unemployment is the lowest that we've seen it in 50 years, and you are very likely going to be able to get another job very quickly if you decide that you want one. So now is a good time to make a move like this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Jean. Thanks, Catherine. 
If you've got more questions about how to manage your budget, I just want to let you know that Her Money has a coaching program called Finance Fix, and it can help you with these things. It can also help you get on track to grow your wealth. Finance Fix was developed from years of money makeovers that I did on shows like Oprah and The Today Show, where I've crafted a methodology that works. And this eight-week program pairs you with a trained finance coach and a group of like-minded women who are all marching in the same direction to spend a little less, save a little more, and invest in your future. I also drop in on meetings from time to time. You can learn more or sign up for our next session at financefix.com. And we spell fix with two X's. And in today's Thrive, let's talk about the pink tax. For a long time, women have paid a premium on certain items at the store, including socks, shampoo, lotions, razors, so much more. Overall, products designed for women cost a maddening average of 7% more than similar products for men. And states like New York and California have passed laws to eliminate the ping tax. But in most of the U.S., you are probably paying more for dozens of products that really aren't all that different. That's why at HerMoney.com, we've got a list of tips that you can use to avoid those upcharges. Number one, buy your socks in the men's department, or if you have a husband who is willing to allow it, as mine is, just take some of his. Look, there is not usually much of a difference between socks for men versus women, except that men's are usually cheaper, and don't worry, they don't have to be beige or black or navy. There are plenty of colorful options. On a similar note, if you're shopping for your kids, look for gender neutral or boys' clothes instead of clothes marketed specifically to girls. When it comes to t-shirts or gym clothes, your kids are not going to notice the difference, and you can save even more by thrifting those essentials. For things like shampoos and lotion, you should know that often the only difference between products for men and women is the fragrance. Labels like formulated especially for women don't mean a thing. So you are not missing out if you buy men's shampoo instead. And if you're not a fan of the men's fragrances, just go unscented. You'll also want to compare the weight of your products because many brands use that to mask price differences. One last thing, there is one other kind of pink tax that women have to pay and that is sales tax for period products. Many states make essentials like groceries and prescriptions tax-free, but they don't do the same for pads and tampons, even though we all know menstruating is not optional. You can't shop your way around that pink tax, but you can let lawmakers know with your vote that you do not like it. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Mindy Weinstein for a really illuminating psychology lesson. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. Hey.